Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Ralph Nader argues for a grand coalition to stop corporatism. Steve Forbes pushes for a return to a stable dollar. Francis Fukuyama talks about the end of history 25 years later. Barry Posen offers a warning to foreign policy elites. And economist George Borjas parses the economics of immigration. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Much of the discussion following uh, revelations about the Department of Veterans Affairs has focused on pretty much just getting the right guy in there to fix things and to talk about some of the follies of perhaps that thinking and beyond. We're talking to uh, Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank Hello. you. So let's uh, let's get started here, uh, and and just so we're all on the same page, including our listeners, what obligations does the United States have to veterans that we ask to send, that we send into various uh, awful parts of the world on a regular basis? Well, on one hand, you can look at it as a moral obligation. If you're sending people into harm's way, then you have a duty to care for any injuries that they sustain while in combat. Uh, From an economic standpoint, you have to do that or no one's going to enlist. No one's going to sign up to fight for this country. So, so you have to do, make some provision for caring for veterans. That's right. I mean, I think there are relatively few instances in which the moral and the economic go so well together. But in this case, they obviously do. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think there are a lot of sacred obligations in the world, but this is one of them. Uh, I think it's not just because I served in the military myself and thankfully was never injured, but knew if I were ever injured that I'd be you know, entitled to, to care. Um, so it's right. It, it, Michael's exactly right. We, we rely on a volunteer military, and one of the things that people consistently um, remark on as one of the reasons why they join the military in the first place is because of medical care. And, of course, the worst sort of cases are, the, are those when they're killed, uh, wounded in, in, in action in wars. All right. So we, the, the primary veterans, uh, administ- veterans Affairs scandal was tens of thousands of people waiting for uh, medical care, uh, using some fancy tricks to reset the clock to zero in terms of uh, waiting time, and then tens of thousands more that never made it on to a waiting list. But you guys both argue this isn't uh, the real problem here. <laughs> That's right. When when Michael when Michael first wrote this, we, we you know we wrote this op-ed together, and uh, he made the, wrote the first draft, and <laughs> I kind of tripped over the line waiting to get on a waiting list, and I said, "Is that right?" And it, it turns out, yes, that was actually what was happening. They were they were uh, trying to fudge the numbers. Uh, look, you're going to have a situation. What, what we have is a situation where the the system does not scale when there are large increases in numbers of people being treated. So when you start the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and you're going to have more people who require care, uh, the VA system is not designed to be able to quickly accommodate those additional people, which is why there was such a huge backlog. In addition to that, there have been a number of changes over the years that have expanded the roles of those people who can be treated in VA hospitals for various injuries and ailments, even going back to the Vietnam War and before. So there's, this is a building problem, but it was certainly exacerbated by the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these are exactly the sorts of problems we see in other systems that are set up, like the VA. If you look at Great Britain's National Health Service, if you look at uh, the Canadian Medicare system, a lot of people in the United States look at the long waits for care in those systems and they think, thank God, we don't have anything like this here. And yet that's what we do to our veterans. 
we have a government-run, completely government-run healthcare system for veterans where the patients pay little or nothing at the point of service. And because resources are scarce and demand is unleashed in that way, you end up with waiting lists. You end up with uh, with shortages, actually shortages in some area and gluts in other areas. They have resources that are going unused in the Veterans Health Administration and they can't get the stuff from where it isn't needed to where it is needed because unlike a market, you don't have a functioning price mechanism that, that does that work for you. And so even though there's widespread agreement over uh, over the, the – the, the, how we have a moral obligation to care for veterans, we permit this to happen year after year. This scandal is not new. This has been going on for decades. I mean, I think Born on the Fourth of July, the film that came out, I guess it was early 90s or yeah, around then. That was, that was about uh, Vietnam veterans having difficulty accessing uh, care through the Veterans Administration. It's been going on for decades before that. And it's because the problems that we're seeing right now in the VA are systemic. And so personnel changes are not going to alter them. You have to reform the program fundamentally. And so uh, if I understand you guys correctly, you're proposing essentially, uh, you know, we think about this tooth to tail that idea that, uh, Chris, you and I have talked about mm -hmm. many times and is sort of ubiquitous among people who understand the uh, policy problems unique to the military. That is, you get into a war, you have the teeth, the people actually fighting it, but there's a whole lot of support right. that necessarily goes along with that that can go on for many decades. Right. So the, the tooth to tail problem is actually it's a twofold problem. We talk about it usually in the context of the present day. So we talk about people who are fighting and then the people who are required even in the field or back at home to support those people who are fighting. But the tail is also a temporal issue. It's a question of over time. And this is something that I wrote about in a, in a fairly cursory way uh, several years ago in the power problem, just noting that the cost of wars accumulate long after the shooting stops. And that's because the veterans who live are cared for until the day they die. Uh, and in fact, the, the time frame is, is about 40 years on average. Is the peak year of paying veterans, veterans payments is around 40 years after the end of the war, which is rather remarkable. But that's the tale. That's what we're talking about here. Um, and so you know, Michael's innovation was in dealing with this problem of we have a, I said kind of casual, too casually, I, I, I admit, well, we should pay for these things. And the, and the real innovation is Michael's idea for how we go about paying for it up front to, to compel people to think about these costs before they, they incur them. So detail that, Michael. If you don't mind. Well, one way to understand it is like this. When free market advocates say they want to reform the Veterans Health Administration, they say, all right, what we should be doing is instead of having the patients pay nothing and the government make the resource decisions we, and you know, socialized system like Canada's or Great Britain's, we should, we should give the veterans a voucher and let them spend it. And because they'll make better decisions, you'll get more responsive care. They can fire their providers if there are these shortages and go to another provider. You'll get more innovation and so forth. And that's, that idea has merit and I think that, uh, that uh, it would be an improvement over what we have right now. But there's another problem with the Veterans Health Administration and this is actually something that bothers the left even more than it bothers the right. And that is that when Congress is deciding whether it's going to go to war, commit troops to, to war or just fund something that the president uh, – uh, 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 an engagement that the president has embarked upon. Uh, Congress doesn't take into account the cost of those benefits, which are very expensive and, as Chris said, peak maybe 40 years after the conflict. And because they're not taking 
into account the full cost of that military conflict, they're more likely to in, to uh, to engage in it. They're more likely to fund it. They're they're less likely to scrutinize it and want to um, question whether it's it's really worth the full cost because they're not taking the full cost into account. So uh, so what I've proposed is instead of waiting until those veterans benefit or those those veterans claims come due, what Congress should do is prefund veterans' benefits in the following manner. You say to every uh, soldier or sailor when they enlist, okay, here's your base pay. Here's, your, here's the cash we're going to give you for, uh, for this job. But we're also going to give you an, an additional lump sum of cash that's going to – with which you can purchase insurance to cover uh, – life insurance, disability insurance, health insurance to cover anything that happens to you during this enlistment. And the amount that the that the, the the soldiers get would vary based on the risk posed by individual jobs, and it could be pegged to uh, what you know, say the average that insurance companies would charge someone in that position. So you have private insurance companies offering those types of insurance to people. Those premiums determine how much those th they get paid. So if you're jumping out of airplanes, you're going to get a higher, you're going to get a bigger chunk of money to buy health insurance than and and other forms of insurance than someone who's just a desk jockey. You, buy, you use that money, you buy that insurance, and then it's there to cover – after you leave the military to cover any, um, any uh, uh, combat-related or, or service-related injuries. And you have all the benefits that you've got of a voucher system, which is you get to choose your insurance provider. You can, you can switch if they have a bad reputation and so forth. You can choose your health care providers uh, on the other end. But it also forces Congress to pre-fund those commitments, those, those veterans' benefits. And in a way that will really make them pay closer attention to the cost of combat. So if, if, they're, if Congress is considering whether we should go to war in Iraq, for example, then as that conflict looks more and more likely – then the insurers who are who are offering this coverage to, to to soldiers are going to increase their premiums to reflect the added cost of injury. And when those premiums go up, Congress has to increase the amount that they're paying uh, uh, service members to buy that insurance. And it, in effect, they are then prefunding those benefits and facing and they have to face those costs up front. And they'll make better decisions about whether we should go to war or not. We we would have fewer dumb wars, as President Obama once said. And we'd have less dumb health care. Yeah, I mean, the two points about this, uh, to, to add what Michael said, we have significantly increased uh, spending on the Veterans Administration, the Department of Veterans Affairs, um, since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Not surprisingly, these costs function much like other so-called entitlements do, which is the, that there are certain terms and if you meet those terms, then you are eligible for care. And so the spending has gone up more, double, more than doubled for the rate of inflation since 2001. So as would be expected, our point is it's not nearly enough. It's, it does not respond fast enough and you have this kind of systemic problem of a, of a system where there's no competition. The other issue is for people who, who are sympathetic to our argument for you know, caring for the troops and our sacred obligations, um, they also have to be serious about thinking through you know, whether the wars are worth fighting in the first place. And that's where, again, you see an interesting divide between left and right. Um, you know, but even there are some on the left, of course, this is not a purely left-right divide. This is a question of are we fighting too many wars or too few? Do we want to have more impediments to going to war or fewer? 
Uh, and so we think that there, there are the twin merits of this proposal. One is it will provide better care at a better price for the service members. That's the most important thing. But an important secondary benefit is that it will reduce the instances of war in the first place. Uh, Michael Cannon, what, you, what you're talking about, uh, I think James Buchanan refers to as a fiscal illusion. That is, we think we're getting some things on the cheap now, but that's because we've been able to push off the costs to tomorrow and presumably somebody else. That's right. And and Congress does this sort of thing all the time, from running deficits every year to the, the way they structure the rules for passing a budget to hide uh, costs or, or, or to push cuts into the future years and tax increases into future years while they just deficit spend in current years. And 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 so this is – I don't think this was done by design. It just sort of evolved this way that this is how we pay for veterans benefits. But if you wanted to structure veterans benefits in a way that made it easier to go to war, it would, har- it would be hard to find a, a, a way to structure them that – better than this to, right. you know, so. Yeah, we do not have, there are lots of reasons why this country does not have, generally does not have serious debates about whether or not we go to war. Because in the, you know, in the old days or in, or even not so long ago, countries that make bad decisions and go to, ba- uh, go to war foolishly, uh, it ends badly for them. Okay, you don't have to go back to the Peloponnesian War, where basically, if you were defeated by a Greek city-state, you you know all the men and women, all the men were killed, and the women and children were all sold into slavery. More recent examples are countries lose parts of their territory, they suffer you know grievous losses, they pay reparations for decades or more. The United States is remarkably secure, extraordinarily so, and so we don't have the kind of debate that you would expect of a country that was on the on, you know on the margins of security, because even when we make really bad decisions about really stupid wars. The, the effect for most people is not that great. So in other words, we need an additional reason, an additional mechanism for having a serious debate because otherwise we're not going to have one. And we saw that play out in and, the case and, of Iraq. And I think it's important to point out this wouldn't uh, – pre-funding veterans benefits in this way wouldn't uh, prevent Congress from sen- sending from, – from declaring war or if that were truly necessary. Right. If it were an existential threat, they'd still be able to do that just as they can today. And they wouldn't even have to pay for the veterans' benefits immediately. They could still fund them with deficit spending, but at least those they'd have to borrow that money now. And that expenditure would have to be on the books. You could also look at the case of the, of the, of the Afghanistan war, the original, the early stages of which I think most of us agree was, was a legitimate use of force, one of those rare instances where it definitely was, was legitimate. But it probably would have put pressure on them to terminate the war faster than they did. So now we've seen what's essentially a nation-building operation that has next to nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. So it, again, this is, a, this is not a, just a one-off sort of thing. This is a mechanism that will continue to put pressure to force people to revisit the cost right. of war, and not just at the decision to go to war in the first place. And the initial estimate from the Bush administration were that going into Iraq would cost $50 billion. It turns out that the veterans' benefits alone are in the neighborhood – from Iraq and Afghanistan are in the neighborhood of $1 trillion. Now, that – Congress wouldn't have faced that $1 trillion cost up front. They would have faced a, a little bit of it year after year as the war went on and that would have put pressure on them to end those wars sooner if, if they didn't start, say, the Iraq war in the first place. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Christopher Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read uh, the uh, relevant op-ed on this, the other veteran scandal, at our website, cato.org. Francis Fukuyama says that history is directional, but where does it lead? 
for a long time, he says most progressive intellectuals believed that the end of history would arrive at something like communism. That view has, of course, changed. At the Cato Institute in June, Fukuyama discussed his thoughts more than two decades after he himself declared the end of history. I was an undergraduate at Cornell University, uh, and one of my first teachers at Cornell was the late Alan Bloom, the political uh, theorist who was himself a student of uh, uh, the political philosopher Leo uh, Strauss. The very first uh, course I took as an undergraduate, as a freshman at Cornell, uh, was a seminar that Bloom taught on Plato's uh, Republic, and that's why I ended up being a classics major, uh, so that I could learn Greek, essentially, and, and be able to read Plato and Aristotle uh, in the original uh, Greek. And I spent most of my undergraduate uh, years uh, reading political philosophy, and one of Bloom's uh, associates had been uh, the Franco-Russian uh, philosopher Alexandre Kojev. Uh, he's very little known in the United States, but is quite uh, prominent in uh, France because in the 1930s and into the early 1940s, up to the German occupation, uh, he uh, taught a very, very famous uh, seminar that virtually every important mid-century French intellectual attended at one time uh, or another. Then this included Jean-Paul Sartre, Raymond Canot, uh, Raymond Aron, uh, that entire generation of French intellectuals. And the notes, he, Kojev didn't really write uh, organized books, but the notes to that uh, series, uh, that seminar, uh, was eventually published uh, under the title L'Introduction à la Lecture de Hegel, Introduction to the Reading uh, of Hegel. And uh, among other things, Kojev had a long conversation, philosophical conversation, uh, with Leo Strauss and so forth. And so as part of my undergraduate education, I. Uh, I read this book, and uh, it was really, uh, so the idea of the end of history comes from Hegel. In the Phenomenology of Spirit, uh, he, he talks about um, uh, the culmination uh, of history, but uh, Kojev, in his usual rather dry uh, and understated way, uh, made this remarkable assertion that, uh, yes, the essence of understanding Hegel was that history had ended, and he had a precise year in which it ended. It ended in the year 1806. Uh, it ended uh, with the Battle of Jena, in which uh, uh, Napoleon defeated uh, the Prussian army and um, brought uh, Prussia to its knees uh, in the course of the Napoleonic Wars. So uh, we have it on record that actually history did not end in 1989. It ended in 1806. And if you think about that, so uh, Kojev was an extremely brilliant uh, fellow. And if a person like that makes a uh, demonstrably ridiculous statement like history ended in 1806, uh, it behooves lesser lights like us to actually think, well, what did he mean by that? And uh, I think that my interpretation of that is, is roughly uh, that, you know, what happened in 1806, you know, so Hegel was actually a, a, a professor, a young professor of philosophy uh, at the University of Jena at the time. And uh, Napoleon actually came through the town of Jena riding on a horse. And Hegel you know, literally uh, witnessed Hegel, uh, Napoleon uh, riding through his hometown. And I think what this signified for, uh, for uh, the young Hegel was the fact that the ideas and the ideals underlying the French Revolution, that is to say, the ideas of liberty and equality, uh, had 
achieved a victory uh, in the world. Uh, and what Kojev said was, yeah, you know, in the 200 years since the Battle of Yen, yeah, a lot of stuff has happened. You know, Bolshevik Revolution, a couple of world wars, the Chinese Revolution, all of that is just backfilling. It, it's just the realization uh, of a set of ideas that had been for the first time actually made real somewhere uh, in the world. Uh, and all we had to do now, I mean, the only historical task was not to go beyond it, but actually to, you know, to, to realize it uh, in the here and now. Now, of course, uh, Kojev's own political position was a little bit complicated because it, it was revealed uh, by Dominique Ofray and a number of other people after he died that he was actually for a while under the pay of the KGB and had been a communist uh, you know, at, at various, stage, various stages of his career. And in his own writing, uh, there was a certain ambiguity as to whether the end of history was really something like liberal democracy or uh, of the sort uh, practiced by the European Union or whether it was the more socialist uh, version of this. And my uh, choice was to interpret it in the former manner. And in fact, uh, Kojev later in his life became a bureaucrat in the early uh, European economic uh, community, uh, which was a joining of his philosophical ideas with, with, with actual practice uh, that uh, you know, he felt that the European Union was the embodiment of, of what would emerge uh, at the end of history. And, and, and I think the single way I would explain my idea is, is as follows, that the notion that history is directional, I think, is accepted by very many people. We may complain about the idea of progress, but we, we believe it. We believe that there's something, something like modernization and development. And the question is, where does the arrow of that historical process lead? For 150 years prior to 1989, most progressive intellectuals around the world believed that it pointed to some form of communism. I mean, that was Marx's idea. Marx was a, you know, he, he borrowed a lot from Hegel. He believed that there was an end of history, but he said that the end of history would be a communist utopia. And what I regarded myself as arguing back in, 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 in that period was, was something much simpler, uh, that uh, history was directional, that there was a modernization process, that it was pointing in a certain direction, but it didn't look like we would ever get to communism, that we would stop at the penultimate station on that train, which was a bourgeois liberal democracy and a market uh, economy, and that was, the, um, uh, that was the appropriate end of history. How should the electorate deal with corporate welfare, corporatism, and crony capitalism? Ralph Nader, in his new book, Unstoppable, presents a case on behalf of a coalition of libertarians, conservatives, and progressives to end corporate welfare. He made his case at the Cato Institute in June. This book is a long time in uh, being conceived, and it uh, goes back a long ways in terms of my experience with uh, people of different ideological uh, labels. And it was quite clear to me many, many years ago, that power structures believe in dividing and ruling, and if they can distract attention from the areas where different groups agree to where they disagree, they can pretty much uh, change that strategy of divide and rule into an institutional 
uh, awareness level. And so you see all these arguments and all these descriptions about red state, blue state, conservative, uh, liberal. Uh, uh, you see the uh, polarization word used uh, all the time. And it is true, uh, left, right uh, do disagree, uh, rather interminably, on things like reproductive rights, balanced budget, uh, school prayer, uh, gun control, uh, with uh, variations on the margins. Uh, that, those are generally areas of, uh, of disagreement. But the areas of agreement are extraordinarily uh, numerous and very fundamental. They're fundamental in terms of the procedural rights of any society that calls itself democratic, such as civil liberties. Uh, they're fundamental in terms of the misuse of taxpayer dollars, uh, for example, into the military industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us against. Uh, they're very fundamental in terms of preserving local, state, and national sovereignty from excessive uh, surrender uh, to unaccountable transnational systems of corporate governance like uh, NAFTA, and the, the World Trade Organization. Uh, they are fundamental in terms of law and order for the rich and powerful, uh, not just for street criminals. Uh, they, they are fundamental in terms of giving voters more voices and choices. That means lower ballot access barriers. We have the highest ballot access barriers in the Western world. Uh, it means more parties. It means more voice and more choice for voters. Uh, structurally, it means that if we give candidates more rights uh, to get on the ballot, we are irrevocably giving voters more rights to have the choices of both agendas and, and candidates. Now, those are pretty important areas. Uh, and there are more areas of convergence between left and right. This book is for serious people who read, think, and are very serious about our country's future and its place in the world. And some wry satirist may say, well, you can get all those people in one room. I disagree. I think basically uh, the left-right convergence operates at various stages from inception to victory, depending on the issues. It operates, and it's already there in terms of public opinion. We have large majorities behind the issues that I've mentioned, uh, the, the, uh, the, the polls on breaking up the big uh, banks that are considered too big to fail, they come in at around 90% because the people fear that Wall Street will crash Main Street again. The polls come in very high on prosecuting big-time Wall Street crooks. That comes in you know, off the chart. People think there was wrongdoing in the crashing of our economy and unemploying 8 million people and burdening taxpayers with a gigantic bailout, not to mention the shredding of worker pensions and uh, the savings of people. And yet, nobody was prosecuted, nobody went to jail. Uh, in contrast to the savings and loan scandals, where there were prosecutions, convictions, and jail terms served by over 800 officials of the SNLs, uh, Amir, 25, 30 years ago. So things are getting worse in terms of what? In terms of what Franklin Donald Roosevelt called fascism. He called it in a message in 1938 to the US Congress asking 
for the creation of a temporary national economic commission to investigate concentrated corporate power. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing him, except for that word, which he used, he said, whenever government is controlled by private economic power, that's fascism. And crony capitalism is the phrase that people on the right use. Corporate welfare is the phrase that people on the left use. But what it amounts to is extraordinary power over government agencies and departments to turn their mission into a corporate capitalist guaranteed system. And I use the word corporate capitalism to contrast uh, the capitalism that we associate with small business who, if they don't succeed, they're free to go bankrupt. And big business, if it doesn't succeed because of mismanagement, crime, or other irregularities, they go to Washington. Or if they don't, do go to bankrupt, bankruptcy, uh, it is immediately tied to a government bailout, as we saw with General Motors not long ago. The basis of the convergence, to go even deeper, is the preamble to the Constitution, which is we the people, not we the corporations. Barry Posen says the United States has grown incapable of moderating its foreign policy ambitions. Since the collapse of Soviet power, it has pursued a grand strategy that has tended to overreach, generating a host of failures and encountering many unexpected difficulties along the way. At the Cato Institute in June, Posen discussed his new book, Restraint, a new foundation for U.S. grand strategy. I should say at the outset that um, you know, I have a, in this book, I kind of take a, a very classical approach to thinking about these questions. So for me, grand strategy is about national security, and national security is about a handful of really important questions, which is threats to your territory, threats to your sovereignty, threats to your safety, and threats to the power position that allow you to protect these other three things in essentially an, an anarchical world, right? A grand strategy is a kind of a theory about how to create security, a kind of political military means ends chain. It should be accompanied by some sort of reasoned explanation for why the means ends chain is expected to work. And as strategists have long advised us, because resources are always scarce, a grand strategy has to set priority. So that's, you know, that's my basic approach coming in. And you all know that you know, I've already settled half the argument by telling you that this is my basic approach and not some other approach. Definitions, in some cases, are everything. Um, now, my view about US grand strategy, which I call liberal hegemony, which is a term that I think maybe John Eikenberry was the first to use, is that this has essentially become the consensus grand strategy of the United States. There's not really very much difference between the mainstream Republican defense establishment, foreign policy establishment, mainstream Democratic foreign policy, Democratic uh, foreign policy and national security establishment on what the grand strategy is. And in this grand strategy, pretty much everything matters from terrorism to failed states to rising powers to revanchist powers. Um, and to the protection of timorous allies, pretty much everything matters. I wasn't at West Point for the president's speech, but um, I, I reviewed the speech, and I was actually sort of surprised at the reaction that it elicited that this was somehow some sort of a, a restraint document, because I think the word restraint was used in the strategy in one place. <laughs> 
If you read the president's speech, it's the same strategy. It's a liberal hegemony strategy, kind of kinder, gentler, a little more focused, but it's, it's, it's the strategy. Why liberal, why hegemony? Hegemony because it's based on the great US advantage and its power position that it had when the Cold War ended, and it, in some sense, fetishizes sustaining that advantage, which is very hard to do. And it's liberal because it aims to um, build a liberal world order, build and sustain a liberal world order, but also to liberalize other countries. So it's, it has a liberal aspect to it, both in terms of the way it looks at the internal workings of other countries, the way it looks at international politics, and it's the United States' job to use its great power to make the world more liberal. And this consensus was really born of the way the Cold War ended, with the United States in such a preeminent position, and with a kind of self-confident muscular liberalism being the victor over a, you know, a kind of a sclerotic totalitarian um, system. <clears throat> but there's something odd that happened after the Cold War ended. Uh, and it, you know, it, Bob Work, who's now our Deputy Secretary of Defense, uh, he basically, uh, he had a briefing he was giving for a while, and I think you can still find it online at the Naval War College. And it shows something interesting, that in the post-Cold War world, the United States has been at war about twice as often as it was during the Cold War. Now, the wars aren't necessarily worse. The casualties aren't necessarily worse. You can debate about what you call a war or not. But it's a little odd for a country that's as secure as we were when the Cold War ended to be at war so often. So there's a puzzle here. There's something going on, right? We've been very energetic. Um, now, this project, I argue, is unnecessary. And it's unnecessary for the classical reasons that geopoliticians have adduced when they talk about US foreign policy for, you know, for a long time. The US is a rich country in terms of industrial and technological capacities and in terms of natural endowments. Um, the US sits behind these vast oceans. Uh, the US is blessed with relatively weak and pliant neighbors to the north and south. The US has nuclear weapons and therefore cannot be conquered. The US has a terrific military backed by a talented research and development community and a defense industry that can build fantastic weapons if you give it enough time and enough money. Um, and people who often worry about America's trade position, uh, yes, trade in America GDP has grown as a share, but a big chunk of that trade is in this hemisphere, about a third. Um, and then when you look at the rest of American trade, it's distributed across many countries, right? So many, many bad things would have to happen to close the world off to American trade. And of course, the biggest concentration of American trade is with our erstwhile adversary, China. So if you're protecting international trade, you're protecting the rising power that you're then targeting your military against. So we're at tail chase problem here in our grand strategy. Now, you know, you stole my thunder. As I said, I believe the strategy is unnecessary, counterproductive, costly, and wasteful. Um, the military, political, and economic costs of the strategy are rising, and they're destined to rise even more for some reasons that I'll discuss. Now, what is my lens for looking at some of these problems? Well, my lens is realism. I, I, you know, I, I studied with Kenneth Waltz, and some people would argue I was hardwired at birth with only one or two theories, and I can't get them out of my head. That's one of them. So this is sort of the way I look at the world. So one thing realists imagine is in the face of great power, other states will balance. And we're seeing some balancing in the world, less than you might have expected, but some. Some states are building or rebuilding their military capabilities, you know, China and Russia. Um, some capable states are concerting action to try and make America's life a little more difficult in its project. Russia and China would be another. Um, some states, even states that are allies of ours, occasionally throw monkey wrenches at American projects when it's cheap to do so. Um, so we push with great power 
others will push back, and this makes the project more costly than you might imagine when you start it. Another thing realism sort of suggests is that pretty much every state is out for its interests, and this means that America's allies are not loving partners. America's allies are, are states like any others, and um, we've seen two characteristic kinds of action on the part of American allies that are really not in our interests. Um, one is that it's cheap riding, sometimes referred to as free riding, but really cheap riding. Um, it's an old saw of this business that Europe and Japan spend much smaller shares of GDP on defense than does the US. Japan about 1%, Europeans about 1.6. The Americans have varied since the Cold War ended. I think we almost got down to three in the Clinton administration, but I think we back up closer to four in the for the wars, not counting the wars themselves. Um, our allies' defense budgets actually diminished in real terms since the Cold War ended or remained flat. The Japanese defense budget is a little hard to read sometimes. Um, though ostensibly allied and supportive of some US projects, the allies don't contribute much when the chips are down from a resource point of view. I always put in a caveat here because I, I respect the sacrifices of European soldiers. Many of them died for the cause in Afghanistan. Uh, they sacrificed a lot for the common good. Uh, but they've done so under a variety of operational and tactical constraints and resource limitations that are dictated by their government's cheap riding policies. We have other allies who are so secure in America's embrace that they drive recklessly. This is another problem that's not often discussed. Um, some of them are not even American allies. They just think they are. The Georgian government drove recklessly. Taiwan at times has driven recklessly. The Maliki government has been driving recklessly, and it just crashed into something for its reckless driving. The Karzai government, who knows when the next crash will come there. Israel, the state that I actually admire, um, I think often drives recklessly. The United States doesn't do much to discipline it. Um, secure in our embrace, they do things that friends of theirs might say are problematical for them, but whether they're problematical for them or not, they're problematical for us, and we don't seem to be able to do very much about it. And this increased the costs of our engagement, our liberal hegemonic policy. In his new book, Immigration Economics, author and immigration scholar George Borjas discusses how immigrants affect the wages of American workers, government budgets, and virtually every other aspect of the American economy and workforce. Borjas discussed his work at the Cato Institute in June. So the, what the book is really about is the following question. What does economics have to say about immigration? And what do we have to assume to get it to say what it says, or what we think it says. And one of the important contributions of the book, I believe, is to sort of deconstruct the various models to sort of show you what it is that you need to assume, and what role each assumption plays in the, in the eventual conclusion, and how robust those results are to the various changes and assumptions that one can possibly make. So I'm going to give you a few examples in the brief talk today as to what some of the topics that the book addresses, the assumptions that are made, the conclusions that are reached, and sort of try to tell you a little bit about how believable the whole thing happens to be once you put it in a context. And the way I want to start is by basically discussing the skills of immigrants. Every economic discussion of immigration has to hinges really on how the skills of immigrants compare to the skills of natives in the receiving country. It is a comparison of those two skill distributions that determines the net economic impact. Immigration in the US today, for example, has a particular impact. 
it would have a particular, it would have a very different impact if most of the immigrants were very skilled, and it have a very different impact still if almost all of the immigrants were highly unskilled. So the question of how immigrants compare, how the skills of immigrants compared to the skills of natives is really a fundamental question that is addressed practically in every single receiving country because that determines the eventual impact. And uh, one of the things that you start to notice once you study immigration and trying to determine how, and trying to measure how the skills of immigrants are, are determined is that not everybody migrates. The fact of the matter is that even when there are no policy restrictions prohibiting migration, not everybody migrates. A great example of this is Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, since about 100 years ago, has no policy restrictions prohibiting the movement of Puerto Ricans to the US mainland. Puerto Ricans are US citizens by birth. Uh, per capita income in, in Puerto Rico is actually much lower than per capita income in the United States, even after 100 year of years of free trade and a lot of labor flows. And the question is, why doesn't everybody leave? Given that, just to give an example, right now in Puerto Rico, you can, if you were a manufacturing worker, you can pretty much increase your annual earnings by about $10,000 moving to the US. And that's after controlling for price of living differentials or cost of living differentials. That means basically that Puerto Rican is more or less, by moving, could capture a $200,000 gain over the lifetime. The only way you can justify within an economic model that, put, that these Puerto Ricans are not moving is to sort of conclude that the cost of moving must be at least $200,000. There's a huge literature on the, on the cost of moving in economics, and what one finds over and over again is that the cost of moving are remarkably high. And that's true whether you do it across countries, whether you do it across states in the US, whether you do it across industries in the US. People, there's some inertia in most people that prevents them from moving, and, and economists would call that mobility cost, basically. So one important result in economics is that the cost of moving for the typical person tend to be very high. And that is what partly prevents most people from moving. But on top of that, not everybody wants to move even if the costs were really low. And the reason is that different people gain differentially by living in different places. Again, an example will, will help out. Think of a country like Sweden. In Sweden, uh, wage inequality, which is a topic in the press very much these days, is very, very low. The highly skilled Swede doesn't really earn much more than the low skilled Swede, especially as compared to the US. In the US, wage inequality is much greater. Now just think, suppose, suppose you're a Swede for a minute, and think of yourself as a Swede at each end of the income distribution in Sweden. Who really wants to move out of Sweden? The people who are being heavily taxed and not allowed to earn their full potential, or the people who are being heavily subsidized and therefore will do much worse by moving out of Sweden. Clearly, when you look at a country like Sweden and the US, the, the, the fact that the rate of return to skills in Sweden is so low compared to the US implies that the highly skilled Swede really want to flow to the country where the rate of return to skills is much higher, namely the US. On the other hand, take a lot of countries in the developing world. They have a lot of income inequality. The rate of return to skills in the developing world is really quite high sometimes. Who wants to move out? Well, again, in terms of pure economics, if people move for the reason of trying to maximize earnings, the people who want to leave are the people who are, are, who are being penalized for the lack of skills, basically. 
and you're going to get a different kind of selection from countries in, that have very low rate, that, that have very high rates of return to skills. And that is one lesson from economics. Differences in prices of skills determine where people choose to live. When a country has a very high return to skills compared to other countries, that country will attract highly skilled workers. When a country doesn't, meaning that it subsidizes low-skilled labor, that country will attract low-skilled workers. The dollar needs to be a credible store of value. Inflation, as even John Maynard Keynes admitted, was like a thief in the night. Steve Forbes argues in his new book simply titled Money, that a return to a stable dollar will pay dividends to just about everyone. He spoke at the Cato Institute in June. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here because uh, it's one of the strange things is that money and monetary policy, for some reason, intimidates a lot of people. Uh, people who can master nuclear physics, can master surgery in the brain, and all sorts of complex subjects. Somehow, when it comes to monetary policy, they, uh, they, they, they feel intimidated. They feel that it's beyond their comprehension. And that, of course, is perpetrated by those who believe in uh, central banking, those who believe in uh, strong government. They shroud this whole subject in a lot of jargon, a lot of complex equations, and they want us to believe that it's beyond our comprehension and uh, understanding, that we mere mortals cannot possibly understand the intricate science of uh, monetary policy. And that's why if you ever bring the subject up, uh, you, you, you're going to get certain reactions. And uh, that's why I always give a travel tip before I discuss the subject, so uh, soften people up. Uh, why they should master this. Uh, if you ever find yourself in an airplane, in coach, in middle seat, on a runway, watching your life pass away, and you want a little bit of elbow room with your seatmates, start talking about monetary policy. <laughs> <clears throat> or if any of you, if any of you uh, are on a date, if you're single or have kids or are single, bad date and one out. Uh, start talking about monetary policy, and <laughs> it'll be over. You'll never see that person again. But uh, so it's, it's true that monetary policy, money is absolutely critical, but it is amazingly simple, which is why we wrote this book. It's critical in the sense that if you don't get the money right, then everything else is going to be undermined. You can get it right on taxes. You can get it right on regulation. You can get it right on spending. But if you don't get the money right, It'll all be for naught. You'll end up in trouble. And so if you get it right or even semi-right, in the 1980s and 90s, we got it sloppily semi-right. If you're grading even these inflationary times, you give it a C. Uh, today we're an F minus, but uh, in the 80s and 90s, sloppy. But even with a sloppy semi-right, uh, we got some real growth. But we could have done more. And the amazing thing is, when you get it right, everything else comes together. You take the case of uh, Britain. Britain, for a long time, had been working towards representative government, including the glorious revolution of 1688. They were far ahead of the rest of the world, much of the world in property rights. There was a lot of innovation going on there, in textiles and shipbuilding. But at the end of the 1600s, they were still a second-tier nation. 
Then along comes a new monarchy, thanks to the Glorious Revolution, bringing over Dutch habits of uh, probity in, uh, in finance. And uh, so Britain goes hardcore with Isaac Newton on a gold standard. He sets the rate. It lasts for 214 years. Britain went from a second-tier nation, and all these other things that were there, moving along, all came together and quickly became the mightiest nation in the world. Small island, mightiest nation in the world. United States, coastal nation, small agricultural nation, we go on a gold standard in 1791, and within a little over a century, go to be the mightiest industrial nation, surpassing Britain. So a lot of other things go into growth, but you gotta get the money right. If you don't, you artificially hold yourself back, and it has real repercussions. Since we went off a gold exchange standard in 1971, we'd been on a gold standard of one sort or another, except for wartime, for 180 years. If we'd maintained since 1971, the average economic growth rates we did for the previous 180 years, for all the ups and downs, if we'd maintained those average growth rates, the U.S. economy today would be 50% larger. 40 years compounding, this thing really adds up. Sure, we had a good time in the 80s and 90s. We had a terrible time in the 70s. We've had a terrible time in the last part, last 12 years because we didn't understand money. And if you don't understand money, even if you get these good periods, it's just inevitable new crises are gonna come up. Even in the 80s and 90s, we almost lost it through unnecessary monetary crisis because we really didn't know what we were doing. And so these things rose up in ways they shouldn't have. And so this is why not only do we have a smaller economy today, it's a critical reason why two incomes today must do the job that one income could do in a family several generations ago. It's also, if you're worried about inequality, look at 1971, you can see the real break. You've got more inequality after 71 if you're into that kind of thing. So in terms of a crisis, whether they're big ones like we had in the 70s, intermittent ones like we had in the 80s and 90s, or the big one we had in 08 and 09, the thing about these crises is, especially the big ones, they always lead to more and bigger government. The more the Fed fails, the more powerful it becomes. Look what it's doing today. They're now ready to, they're already going into the life insurance industry. After the elections, they're ready to go into, try to regulate mutual funds, hedge funds, equity funds, anything that has to do with money, they want to put their paws on. And so, it, and they want to now, and they're on the, now in the process of telling banks, regulators, uh, they don't tell them explicitly, they just hint at it, which is enough. If you're in the uh, doing uh, payday loans, don't uh, banks aren't supposed to do business with you anymore. Gun business, banks are told in effect, don't do business with these people anymore. For-profit colleges, government doesn't like those. Don't uh, do establish real relationships with the people in that business. So it's not just economic numbers. Fed power is becoming more and more pervasive. Jim mentioned quantitative easing, supposedly stimulate the economy, it depressed the economy. The Fed went in the business of credit allocation. It created these reserves and used these reserves to buy virtually all the long-term treasuries for the last three or four years. The perverse effect is it made it very easy for the government to borrow, deficit without tears, no problem for big companies to borrow, but credit for small and new businesses, forget it. They took the hindmost. 
compounded by regulators going into banks, making them paper things six ways to Sunday if you're going to do a non-government, non-mortgage-backed security loan. Credit allocation. Taxes. Well, you know, the Constitution. Remember the Constitution? Constitution said taxes are supposed to emanate from the House of Representatives. Janet Yellen and her predecessors are open that they want at least two, two and a half percent inflation. Put aside how you measure that inflation, but two, two and a half percent rise in the CPI costs the average American family about $1,000 a year. Who gave the Federal Reserve the authority to effectively tax an American family $1,000 a year? Congress should ask her that question explicitly. Who gave you the authority? And also ask, why does raising the price of food and necessities for a family $1,000 a year stimulate the economy? Why, do, why, why does having to spend more on necessities stimulate the economy? Love to see the answer to that. She'll mumble jumble about, uh, well, we've got deflationary pressure, blah, 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 blah. I wish somebody asked her about deflation. Uh, that means prices go down. I mean, retailers in here and around the world are dumbos because they reduce prices of things to move merchandise. Uh, that, that, that's bad. If Walmart raised prices on Black Friday and Thanksgiving, that would just be stimulus because it's inflation. I mean, let's make these things very practical. And so uh, the Fed becomes more powerful. We become poorer. Government becomes more pervasive. And the amazing thing is everyone gets, not everyone, but a lot of people understand outside of media that uh, in terms of abuses of an agencies like the EPA, the IRS, the National Labor Relations Board, but the power growing of the Federal Reserve, it's Teflon on steroids, it's amazing. But the fact of the matter is money actually is very simple. You don't even need a dog to withdraw the curtain. It is very, very, very simple. Money makes transactions easier, buying and selling easier. So in that sense, think of it. Money measures value, the way clocks measure time, scales measure weight, and rulers measure length. That's all money does. And to work, money is based on trust. Money, unless you have these old gold or silver coins, has no intrinsic value. Today, much money just ellipses on a computer. What gives it its value is trust. And when that trust is undermined, it undermines communications. Money gives you information about what people want. Money makes it possible for buyers and sellers to do transactions. That information is corrupted. It's like a, a virus in a computer. You can't trust it anymore. But, but understand, money makes it possible for lenders and borrowers to work together, for investors and entrepreneurs to work together, buyers and sellers. It tells us what society values. It tells us what people want and promotes trust. Strangers can do transactions with each other. It promotes cooperation, breaks down barriers between people. You may not love your neighbor, but you want to sell to your neighbor. Money makes it possible, breaks down these barriers. So in terms of uh, money, just think of it as a claim on products and services that already exist, like a coat check in a restaurant. The coat check has no intrinsic value. It's a claim on a coat. But, uh, and so the idea of stimulus, the idea that government creates money out of thin air, if you, do, if you print money, it's called counterfeiting. If the government does, it's called stimulus. But in, but in essence, in essence, it's creating it out of, out of thin air. It's not a, a representative of an honest, real product or service. It would be like a restaurant saying, if we create more coat checks, we'll create more creation of coats. No. The coat check represents a coat that's been created. 
So it works best when it has a fixed value, just as clocks work best when they have 60 minutes in an hour. Imagine if the Federal Reserve did to clocks what it does to the dollar. And since it's in a power-grabbing mode, it might do it. Imagine floating the clock. Say so you have 60 minutes an hour one day, 48 the next, 82 the next, 22 the next. You'd seem to have, to have hedges, derivatives, futures, figure out how many hours you're working. You hire somebody, 15, 20 bucks an hour. Is that a DC hour, Maryland hour, Bangladesh hour? Or imagine, imagine baking a cake. It says bake the batter 45 minutes. Now you have to figure, is that inflation adjusted minutes? Is that a forward minute? I mean, just just makes it very, very complicated. Imagine building a bridge. Suddenly the ruler goes from 12 inches and a foot to 10. You want to go on that bridge if the ruler keeps changing each day? Or a diet. This is the ultimate easy diet. Raise the number of, uh, of ounces in a pound from 16 to 32. My goodness, 100 pounds lost overnight. No, no. So, but it's, so it, it, is, it is absolutely unreliable, makes money more and more unreliable, corrupts the information. And so you saw it in the past. It, 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 because the information's corrupted, you get bad investment, malinvestment, misdirected investment. For example, in the 1970s, oil went from $3 to almost $40 a barrel. Everyone thought, oh, must be shortages out there. We better, we better go in the oil industry. Tens of billions of dollars pumped into the energy industry. Early 80s, inflation, Volcker, Reagan conquered inflation. Oil crashes from almost $40 down to $10 a barrel, then stabilized at $20 to $25. You saw the same thing in agricultural land. You saw the same thing in commercial real estate and parts of housing. So in the 1980s, which was a boom decade, was a depression time for the energy industry, depression time for agriculture, huge shakeout in commercial real estate. So the growth of the 70s was false because of that virus in the computer. You see it in the last decade. Oil from mid-80s to the early part of the last decade averaged a little over $21 a barrel. Today, it is what? 90, 100, 110, pick a number. Even if you didn't have a Middle East crisis, still would be in the 90s, four to five times. Imagine what life would be like if a gallon of gas cost a dollar, which it did not too many years ago, versus three and a half, four and a half today, depending on the part of the country you're in. We never would have had the housing bubble. Could not have happened if the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department hadn't undermined the dollar. So you get less productive investment. First, investment is, is always a risky thing, but if you don't know if you're going to get back a $0.01, cent dollar, $0.80, cent dollar, $0.20, cent dollar, you get less productive investment. John Tamney, part of Cato, talks about Forbes how you don't get investment in, uh, in future things, you don't, and you don't miss it because you never see it. If Steve Jobs had never been allowed to do what he did, would we have missed the iPhone? No, we never knew it could have been there. If Henry Ford hadn't done the moving assembly line, we wouldn't have known that this toy for the rich could be something for everybody. So it not only misdirects investment, not only suffocates investment, but it also misdirects brain power. One example, before 1971, there was very little currency trading, certainly among the major powers. They were all fixed. Dollar was fixed to gold for a while. Today, currency trading is rampant. The volume today is over $3 trillion a day. Now imagine tens of thousands of the brightest people in the world focusing on currency trading, something that need not exist. Imagine again, if we floated the clock, we'd be trading in watches, having the best brains, trading minutes and hours each day. Absolute waste, absolute waste. So it's a huge, huge, huge uh, cost. So the Federal Reserve in terms of regulation, 
makes it uh, what, what they're doing in terms of trying to suffocate risk is it hurts small companies. I mentioned they got suffocated in the last five to six years because of QE and what has happened with uh, regulation. This also affects growth. One of the virtues of this country, one reason why we traditionally have grown 50% faster than the rest of the developed world is because we create new big companies. They start small and then they become big. 70s terrible decade, look what was rising up. FedEx, Amgen, Apple, Apple Computer, Microsoft, Oracle, Southwest Airlines. All of these babies become the big companies tomorrow. Late 90s, Google, once a number, two guys, challenged Microsoft and others, become now the monster of the world. So a huge price is being paid. And the problem is authorities know less today about money, as Nathan Lewis has pointed out, than they did 100 years ago. So we lurch from these crises, and it's bipartisan. Nixon took us off the gold standard. John Kennedy tried to keep us on it. Ronald Reagan fought the inflation. Bill Clinton wasn't bad on the dollar. Sadly, George W. Bush and this president, bad on the dollar. So it's not a partisan thing, and it's not out of malice. It's because they don't understand money. So the question becomes, how do you best fix a value for money? Now, it's not going to be as precise as a clock or a second, but the experience shows gold. Why gold? Because it works. That's the short answer. Work 4,000 years history, work for 180 years pretty well in this country. Why gold? Basically because it maintains its intrinsic value better than anything else, better than silver, copper, palladium, anything else. And it does so, it's not easy to mine, it's rare but not too rare. It's not perfect but rare but not too rare. You can't destroy it. You wear a gold ring, there may be grains there that go back to Egyptian Pharaoh times. You can't destroy it, you can smash it, heat it, Cool it, beat it up, still there. Can't get rid of it. Means storage. Storage is compact, but also you don't have to worry about rats eating the gold or termites uh, gnawing away at the gold. You don't have to worry about spillage like oil. You don't have to worry about aging. Oh, is this gold, uh, you know, like chocolate? Get, gets a little stale? No, still, still, still good. Easy to transport, malleable. All of those reasons are why gold is like a ruler or a scale. You can give it a fixed value, and it does not mean, it does not mean that it restricts money supply. All it means is money truly reflects what's been created by you in the marketplace. So just because you have 5,280 feet in a mile, you have that fixed measure of a mile, doesn't restrict the number of miles in a highway. You have a vibrant economy, you create more, more money. Stagnant economy, less money. And as Nathan Lewis has pointed out, from the... 1770s, when we started to become an independent nation, the 1900, when we became the mightiest nation in the world. In that period of time, in that period of time, the dollar was usually fixed to gold. In that period of time, the amount of gold mined in the world went up three and a half fold, even with the California gold rush, three and a half fold increase in that 120 year period. Money supply in the US, 160 fold. So it's both Stable in value, but flexible in meeting the needs of the marketplace. So there are variations of a gold standard. We discuss them in the book. And that's what should the debate should be about. Now, whether we go back on it, but what's the best way to do a system that can work today with what we have today? 
we think you need to make it law, not discretionary with the Fed. Let's say we fix it at $1,200 an ounce. I'm just picking a number. That would be law. Go 1% above, 1% below. But if it goes 1% above, the Fed takes countermeasures. Goes below, it takes countermeasures. To make sure the Fed doesn't go off the rails, and this is going to be a dieted Fed, uh, this is going to be a real ad for Weight Watchers before and after with the Fed. We're going to go back to 1913 Fed, pre-World War I Fed, where it has one job or two jobs. One is maintain the value of the dollar against gold. Number two, deal with panics, which you'll get every 75 years. That's it. And maybe it can eventually disappear. But it should be the kind of agency that has no more importance than the Bureau of Weight and Measures inside the Commerce Department. So to make sure you've embedded in law, but also you allow alternative currencies, if the, if the government starts to misbehave, even against the law, which they do now, uh, you can have a Cato dollar, Liberty dollar, maybe a Steve Forbes dollar, who knows, maybe go in the currency business. You also have uh, allow convertibility in the sense that if you want to take your dollars and get, them for, get the bullion from the government, you can. You don't need a gold cover. You just have to maintain a certain amount. I'd make a high commission just so the government doesn't compete with private dealers. But you, have, you, you can devise ways. You can devise ways to uh, make sure the system is as good as humans can divide, to, to, to do it. The law of unintended consequences has increasing importance in this era of expanding government. In his new book, Aftermath, The Unintended Consequences of Public Policies, Thomas Hall explores the consequences of four major policies enacted by government, cigarette taxes, alcohol prohibition, the minimum wage, and the federal income tax. Hall argues that intense review must be given to the range of potential consequences whenever a new government policy is considered. Aftermath is available this month at cato.org slash store. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.